So as we begin our reading in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18, it says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. And so he kind of ends the letter to the Ephesians, wishing upon them the grace that he wished to them at the very beginning of it. As we look at this, remember how Ephesians, I quote John MacArthur, he says, Ephesians begins by lifting us up to the heavens and ends by pulling us down to our knees. And he's exactly right. Remember at the very beginning of the book of Ephesians, he talked about how blessed we were with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. And he talked about how our blessing came from this God who knew us before the foundation of the world, chose us before the foundation of the world, predestined us, and then gave us this glorious inheritance in Christ. So he lifts us up to the heavens where we get to see a glimpse of who we are in Christ. And then as we enter chapter 4, he says, now it's time for you to live up to that. How does somebody live that is this child of God. Well, he did it with a repetition of one word. Walk. He says, this is how I want you to walk. Walk in a way that is worthy of Christ. And then he told us to walk in unity. And he told us to walk in personal holiness. And he told us to walk in love. And to walk in light. And to walk in wisdom. And it's actually part of that walking in wisdom where we find the whole armor of God. You're walking in wisdom if you are putting on this armor of God that He's given us to protect us against the wiles of the devil in this battle that we are in. So He's been telling us to walk in these things, walk in unity, holiness, love, light, wisdom. And then when He gets to the whole armor of God, part of walking in wisdom, He says, now you're going to have to stand. You see, in order to walk in a way that's worthy of Christ, we have to stand. We have to stand for the truth that is our belt. We have to stand for the gospel that is our shoes. We have to stand in faith that is our shield. We have to stand in righteousness that is our breastplate. We cannot walk with Christ without standing. And so he emphasizes for us to stand. But but then it's really cool because when he brings us back all the way around to this idea of prayer that's supposed to permeate all of this, then what is the typical thing that we think about prayer? He doesn't actually mention it here, but I'm going to bring it in. We usually think of praying in what kind of a posture? Kneeling. Well, let's just put it this way. You can't walk if you can't stand. You really can't stand if you don't kneel. You're not going to be able to stand and adorn yourself properly in all the armor if it's not also bathed in prayer. As you're doing all these things, putting on all these parts of armor, be praying. He doesn't bring stop, conclude the armor, bring up a new subject of praying. He actually is just continues that right through this idea of praying. That praying would be present and in all of these things. As John MacArthur put it, he said prayer is the very spiritual air that the soldier of Christ breathes. And so we can't walk if we can't stand. We won't stand if we don't pray. 
Why is it that we can't stand if we don't pray? Well, that comes right back to verse 10 of chapter 6. Remember what it said right at the beginning of this passage? It was finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. You see, we need to be strong in His might, not our, not our own might. In His strength, not our own strength. Which means prayer is a big part of that. When we feel like we can handle something on our own, it doesn't really push us to prayer, it pushes to action, pushes us to do something. And I'm not saying you'll never do anything. You'll do things too. But when we feel like we're overwhelmed, when we feel like, you know what, I don't have the ability, I don't have the capabilities to do what I need to do here, then that pushes us to prayer. Because you see, as we begin to participate in it, prayer humbles us. You can't really go to prayer without recognizing who you're in front of. In prayer, we tend to lose that sense of self-accomplishment, of self-reliance. See, prayer is all about moving from self-reliance to God-reliance. It's saying, God, I can't do this on my own. I need You. And then learning to rely upon Him. And so, what is this all about? It's about being able to walk with Christ in a manner that's worthy. To do that, we need to stand. To do that, we need the whole armor of God. And to do that, we need to kneel. And so, what we want to learn how to do this morning is learn how to kneel so that we can stand. And so as we consider that this morning, I'd like to take us back to, a, to an example. Job is an interesting guy. If, you've have, if you haven't read the book of Job in the Old Testament, Job is a guy that everything was going really well, and he was just a great guy. He was a godly guy trying to raise his family and do right, and God had blessed him beyond measure. Satan comes along before God one day, and God says, look at my servant Job. Is there anybody like that guy? Look at him. Satan says, well, of course he's like that. You give him everything. Take away what he has, he'll curse you to your face. So God says, okay, Satan, go ahead. And so Satan does. He takes everything Job has. Takes his possessions, takes his children, the children's lives, takes his servants. Brings him down to about nothing. God just said, you can't touch him though. And then Satan comes back and says, flesh for flesh, let me touch him. And God says, okay, you can touch him, but you can't kill him. And so Satan takes him basically right up to death's door without killing him. uh, Attacks his health and, and Job is just sitting there in misery. Well, in his misery, he has some friends that decide to come along and comfort him, but they're not very good at it, so they just enhance his misery as he's going through this situation. Well, when you come down toward the end of it, Job succeeded. Job did not curse God. And so in the end, God is going to restore Job. But first, he wants to deal with Job's friends. And so he comes to Job's friends and he says, you know what, you've not answered, you've not counseled well. Job has spoken the truth through this process and you guys blew it. And so uh, he's dealing with them. And this is, this is what happens in Job chapter 42 and verses 8 and 9. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you. And I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Now this is really cool, because look at what happens. God's determined that He's going to have mercy on these people. They didn't speak what was right, so He's telling them that they didn't speak what was right, but He's decided that He's not going to give them what they deserve for it. He's not going to punish them to the extent that they deserve. But how is He going to do it? He says, here's what's going to happen. You've got to go back to Job and you're going to offer these, bring these sacrifices to offer up and you're going to tell Job that you're sorry and ask Him to pray for you. And when Job prays for you, I'm going to forgive you. 
You see, God has determined that things are going to happen, but God has also determined how things are going to happen. You ever thought about that? Has that ever impacted your prayer life where you thought, well, why, why do I really need to pray about it if God already has His will and, and He knows what's going to happen anyway and He's going to do what's... So why do I need to pray? Because God has also determined that you're going to pray about it and that's how it's going to happen. That's a really cool thing. Who is going to put their faith in Christ and experience an eternal salvation because you prayed for them? Or who is going to recover from a physical ailment or because you prayed for them and because God determined that when you prayed for them, that was what was going to happen. See, this is all baked into God's plan. That's why we need to, we need to be involved. We need to be praying. But it doesn't stop there because not only do these people get forgiven when Job prayed for them, but then look at what the very next verse says. It says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. When Job prayed for his friends, God restored Job. So it's really cool. But when we are involved in prayer, God is working in other people's lives because of your prayer. But you know what? He's also working in your life because of your prayer also. And all of that happens not in our own strength, but in God's strength. And so that's what we want to consider here this morning is the the value of prayer in our life in all situations and the necessity of prayer in our life in this battle. Remember, it's tied to this context of this battle, this spiritual warfare. As we put on all these elements of armor, we need to be bathed in prayer as we participate in these things. Now, through this passage, he uses the word all a lot. Verse 18, he uses the word all four different times. And if you kind of follow where he uses the word all, that's going to help us in outlining and understanding exactly what he's looking for from us in prayer. And so what we want to consider this morning is as we are kneeling to stand, we need to be effective in our prayer life. In this passage, we want to point out five different characteristics that will help us to be effective in prayer. The first characteristic that we see is consistency. In verse 18, it says, praying at all times. We need to be consistent in prayer. We need to be persistent in prayer. That consistency is a major factor in our prayer life. We're supposed to be praying regularly, continually even. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 17 and 18, it says, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, what does that mean to pray continually? Does it mean that we're always consciously talking to God in that sense? I don't think that's what it means. I just think it means as you go about your daily life that there's you can be praying all day long. When something good happens for you, it should be natural that it would be our first response that we thank God for it right there. Wow, God, that was awesome. Thank you for that. Or when a thought comes to your mind about somebody that's in need of something, that you take just a moment and pray for them. You can be crossing the street and that can come to your mind. Pray for them right while you're crossing the street. And then obviously, of course, seasons of prayer as well, where we spend time before God in a more focused manner. But in all of these things, the point is consistency. We have to be consistently in that relationship with God. And it kind of flows naturally into the second point. Sincerity is the second characteristic that I would put down. And and the reason that I put that is this, is because it, it talks about us praying in the Spirit. So what does that mean exactly? How do we pray in the Spirit? Well, most of the commentators say that it means praying in the Spirit's realm. Praying is a spiritual activity. 
And so uh, that's kind of the realm of the Holy Spirit. And so we're praying in His realm. And we're also praying in His power. That's where He empowers us to do things. Is often through prayer. You know what I think it... I think it involves largely just that sincerity of that relationship with God. We're praying in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Not, not seeking our own desires, but God's desire. Not seeking our own will, but God's will. And... You know what, it can be a little bit elusive as far as understanding completely what all that means to be praying in the Spirit. I don't think it has anything to do with with speaking in tongues or anything that's outward and extravagant like that. I think it really has to do with with that just that sincere relationship with, that we have with the Holy Spirit. You know, in fact, I would tell you this. If you sometimes get discouraged because you don't know whether you're praying in the Spirit. You don't, you're not sure if you're doing it quite right. You're not sure if, if that experience is exactly what you're, the experience you're supposed to be having. Let me encourage you with this. It's supposed to be that way. Alright, if you're confused by that, that's not an uncommon thing. Everybody experiences that. In fact, the Bible tells us that you don't have the ability to know exactly how you should pray as you ought to. Jesus in the Lord's Prayer gave us a pattern of how we should pray. The disciples asked Him, Lord, teach us how to pray. And He says, okay, pray like this. And it really wasn't meant to be something that we just repeat all the time. Like any Bible verse, it's not bad to repeat it. But it wasn't really made to be that. It's more, it was more made to be a formula or an example. In other words, pray for these things. These subjects that He covers within that prayer. There are things that we can learn about prayer. And there are different uh, ways that we should pray or different avenues of prayer. But you know what? The fact of the matter is, is it's the Spirit in you that really knows how to pray. That Holy Spirit that works within you. And you're not always going to know. But when you get before God in sincerity, just opening up your heart before God and trying to bring His truth into the situation from the Word of God, that's where the Spirit's involved. And when you're confused, He's not. And He's going to help you with that. In fact, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27, says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So if you're having one of those moments when you're before God and you're like, God, I don't even know if I'm totally doing this right. I don't even know what to ask in this present situation. You know what? That's okay. Because God knows you don't know what to ask. He just told you right there in Romans chapter 8 that you're not going to know what to ask. But that's okay because you know what? As you come before God in sincerity and openness and allowing His truth to permeate you and your situation, then the Spirit kicks in and He knows what to ask. But what does it involve? It involves the sincerity of that relationship with the Spirit, that ongoing and growing relationship. That's exactly what Jesus butted heads with the religious leaders over. They were not sincere in their prayers. Their prayers were for a show. Jesus said, you go out and you make these wide garments. They did. Their their fringes on their garments and tassels meant that they were like people of prayer was what it was kind of supposed to signify. And so they made these broad uh, boundaries on their garments and they would stand out in public places on the street corners and stuff and they would make these big, loud, long-winded prayers so that everybody would hear them and see and say, boy, isn't that guy a spiritual guy? Jesus said, don't do that. 
He said, don't go out on the street corners and where everybody can... He says, if, if that's what you want, okay, you got your reward. The people that you wanted to see you saw you. And so they, they think you're a neat guy, so you got what you were after. But you know what? One thing you didn't do? You didn't talk to God. You didn't pray. He said, but when you pray, he said, you know what? Go into a closet. Don't let anybody know that you're there. And pray to your Heavenly Father in secret. And He who sees you in secret will reward you openly. Prayer is supposed to be sincere relationship. It's supposed to be intimate. And that's where the Spirit resides within prayer. And so our prayer needs to be consistent. Sincerity is a major characteristic of prayer, but variety is also a big part of prayer. All of our prayers should not be the same. Now, there's some things that you're going to pray for regularly, and that's going to, that doesn't have any way to not be similar. We just need to kind of make sure that our heart's in it when we're doing it. But that's just the way it is. I don't know how many different ways there are to pray for your food before you eat. There just aren't that many. But you're going to continue to do it, and you just kind of need to check your heart that the sincerity is there as you offer it up, that you're recognizing where your food comes from. Uh, what it does in this passage is it just uses kind of a, gen- a general word for prayer, and then a more specific word for prayer, supplication. And so there, our prayer needs to be both general and specific. We need to be involved in both of those things. Well, if you look throughout the Bible, you can find that there's praise and thanksgiving should be part of our prayer. Uh, confession of our sins should be part of praying. Praying for other people, supplication for other people, or intercession for other people should be part of our praying. Asking God for to fulfill needs that we have should be part of our praying. So, But not every one of those is going to be a part of every prayer that you ever offer. It's just you need to pray in a variety of ways and for a variety of things because that's what a relationship is like. You know, when I think about that, I think of I think of Nehemiah. He was a cupbearer for the king while Israel uh, or Judah was off in captivity. But Israel gets to start moving back home, and it happened in a, a, about three different phases. Nehemiah gets to be one of the guys that gets to lead Israel back home. But here's how it happened: Nehemiah gets a report from his brothers that come to visit. They come from Jerusalem to there, and he says, "How's how's things going over there?" And they say, "Horrible." The wall around the city was all broken down because they'd been in captivity for so long. And so they didn't have any protection from the raiders and the bandits that would come and and take all their stuff. And so life is rough in Jerusalem. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. Now, the being the cupbearer to the king, you don't want to show up in the king's presence looking like you've got something on your mind because you're the one that tastes his food for the last time. If anybody's going to poison the king, you're the guy with the best shot. You're a very trusted individual. So Nehemiah comes before the king, but he can't help being a little bit disgruntled about what's going on in the city of his forefathers. As we come into Nehemiah chapter 1, it says this, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept. So this is when he first gets the words about Jerusalem and the state of the city of his fathers. He says, I wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keeps His commandments, let Your ear be attentive to your and Your eyes open to hear the prayer of Your servant that I now pray before You day and night for the people of Israel, Your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against You, Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. 
Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Look, look at this. I love how he prays God's word back to him. That this, this is a two-way conversation here. He says, But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, this man being the king that he would stand before. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah knows two things. He knows that the city is in ruins, and he's heartbroken over that. And he knows nobody has the ear of the king better than I. And so he concludes from that that it's God's will for me to do something about this. That's pretty awesome thinking. When Nehemiah heard this news about the city, he devoted a chunk of time, a large chunk of time, to prayer. Getting before God, spending time with God, calling upon God to please do something about this. Obviously to use him too, since he's willing to step forward and do something to get involved. And he's got seasons of lengthy prayer. You know what? We need that in our life. We need times where we just set aside everything else. If we're too busy to do this, then we're just too busy. In fact, when you look at some of the heroes in the faith in our history and in, 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 in our past, they would say, I have so much to do that I cannot get by with a whole bunch, without a whole bunch of prayer. Martin Luther said that about, I think, a four-hour time period. He says, i got so much to do that I can't get by with less than four hours a day in prayer. But Nehemiah is not only a good example in that, he's also a good example in this praying through your day or through your life. In Nehemiah chapter 2, and verses 4 and 5, he's before the king. It says, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Notice what happens. Nehemiah is before the king. The king says, what's the matter with you? What's going on? And Nehemiah says this. He says, I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. And then it tells us what he said to the king. It doesn't even tell us what he prayed to the God of heaven. But I do know this. The king is waiting for an answer. So it wasn't a repeat of the prayer that he had in chapter 1. I've often thought, what was Nehemiah's prayer right before he answered the king? And I've often thought, you know what, it could be just one word. Or maybe two. I know there's times when I've prayed just one or two words. There's been times when I've been involved in something and something happens and I just say, oh Lord, help. And I'm not just spouting words at that point. I really want his help. It is a genuine prayer. Oh Lord, I need you right now. That's what Nehemiah is doing right there. In fact, we even call those kinds of prayers Nehemiah prayers because he's in the middle of something. The king asks him a question, waiting for a response, and Nehemiah first prays to God. And then he responds to the king. And so he has seasons of prayer, but he's also just praying through his day. If we go on from there, Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 9, it says, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Now what this is referring to is as they got to work on the walls around the city, their enemies didn't like that. So they started threatening them. And so they said, well, we're getting all these threats about building the wall. What should we do? Well, we should still build the wall. So let's pray, ask God to help us, and then grab your swords and spears. They prayed and they got to work. And then lastly, one thing I want to point out, this is actually found in several passages within the book of Nehemiah. But we see his prayer life so evident right within his writings. 
is in Nehemiah chapter 13. Now what has happened is they rebuild the wall. They study the Word of God. They have this great revival and things are going good. And then Nehemiah goes back to his job as a cupbearer. Then down the road a ways, he comes back to visit again and he finds that Israel is involved in sin again. And one of the three major sins that they're dealing with is breaking the Sabbath day. And so Nehemiah is dealing with that. He takes and closes the city gates and locks all the peddlers outside the city gates on the Sabbath day so they can't come in and sell their stuff. But that doesn't deter them completely. So this is what Nehemiah tells them in chapter 13, verse 21 and following. He says, But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? So the peddlers who are shut outside the wall are staying outside the wall, kind of enticing people to come out and buy their stuff from them. Nehemiah tells them, If you do so again, I'm going to lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath day. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. I love that last part. Nehemiah is recording for us what happened. While he's writing about what happened, he goes right into this prayer. Remember me, O Lord, in dealing with this also. Why? Because it's not the first time he's broke into a prayer like this. That's why when you read the book of Nehemiah, you'll find that he'll be writing along, telling you what happens, and then all of a sudden he's just praying. But he's still writing. And so his whole prayer is recorded for us because he just he's telling us about what's going on, and pretty soon he's talking to God about what's going on, and then he goes back to talking to us about what's going on. Prayer is just woven into the fabric of his life. That's just really a super great example of what our relationship with God needs to be. We need to have that variety of prayer in our life where we have times that are devoted to prayer and we also have God's just like walking alongside you. And you can talk to Him at any time and all the time. That's what we need to experience. Well, not only do we need that in our prayer, but another characteristic that we need in our prayer is energy. He goes on to say, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The Bible often uses a couple words together. Watch and pray. Watch is the idea of being looking for something. In other words, we're expecting. We're expectant. You know, it's kind of like, I think of the New Testament example in the book of Acts when Peter's in jail and everybody's praying that he gets let out of jail. They're all having this big prayer meeting, this focused prayer on just getting Peter out of jail. God springs Peter out of jail and Peter comes and knocks on the door. A young girl named Rhoda comes and answers the door and it's Peter and it's like she shuts it right in his face. She's so excited. Didn't even think to let him in. (laughs) And then she runs back to the group that's in there praying for Peter to get let out. And she says, it's Peter. Peter's at the door. And they don't believe her. It's like, well, why are you praying for it if you don't believe that God can actually or maybe even will actually do it? We need to be alert in our prayer. We need to be watching in our prayer, looking for answers, looking for God to answer as we pray before Him. So we need to be energetic. We need to be focused. You know, I don't know about you, but I would confess that I have trouble from time to time when I pray falling asleep. On the one hand, what a way to fall asleep. Fall asleep with your last words being to God. But on the other hand, I think, are you kidding me? I couldn't, that couldn't keep me awake. The apostles had the same problem. The disciples, as Jesus told them, pray with me for an hour in the garden. And they couldn't do it. He comes back, he finds them asleep. He wakes them up, says, come on, couldn't you stay awake even for an hour? Pray with me. He comes back, they're asleep again. He says, I'll go ahead and stay asleep now. But we need to be active in our prayer. We need to make sure we have energy in our prayer. That we, maybe, maybe sometimes we need to pray at a time of day when we have more energy rather than putting it off till we're dog tired. 
But we need to have energy in our prayer. We need to be watchful in our prayers. And then lastly, the thing that we need, the characteristic is sympathy. Sympathy in our prayers. Because that's, that's just, I put that there just to point out that we need to be thinking of others. We need to be praying for other people. And that's what he tells them to do here. He uses the word all again. He says, pray for all the saints. We need to be praying. And that's not just, he's not just saying, God, I, I pray for every Christian everywhere. One big blanket prayer. Not a bad idea to include that, but he's, I think he's telling them, look, pray for everybody. All the other believers that are going through the same battle that you're going through, that need to be putting on the same spiritual armor that you need to be putting on, pray for all those people that are also fighting their battles and putting on that spiritual armor. In other words, we need to have sympathy in our prayer where we're sympathetic with other people, where we think of other people. Well, as we're engaged in this battle that God has us in, we need all this armor. And lastly, through all of it, permeating all of it, we need prayer. Our prayer needs to be consistent. Our prayer needs to be sincere. Our prayer needs to take on a variety. Our prayer needs to be energetic. And our prayer needs to be sympathetic towards other people to be effective.